The day the carpenter died is as clear in my memory now as it ever was. On that morning, the sun was bright and it was warm. As I walked up the old narrow street from the Palace of Herod the Great uh, to the Fortress Antonio with my escort of soldiers. After I went through the main outer gate of that great strong stone stronghold, I passed into the Hall of Judgment and walked up uh, the long flight of stairs to the chamber where I performed my duties as governor whenever I was in Jerusalem. As I opened the door into that room, I saw my chief assistant standing in the middle of the floor. He had with him a dirty old beggar who was one of our paid informers. My man said to me, this fellow has some information you ought to hear. I walked past them and sat down in my chair. The beggar spoke up loudly. Last night I saw a party of men going through the streets. They were carrying swords and staves. So I asked them where they were going. And they said they were on their way to arrest the carpenter. I joined them and we find him among the olive trees in the garden of Gethsemane. He was there with some friends. He tried to fight us off, but he told them to stop. We took him to the house of the old high priest, and most of us stayed outside when they took him in there. After he had been inside for a while, he was brought out, and then we took him to the house of Caiaphas. Most of us were left outside again, and I watched the house, and I saw the score of priests and elders arrive as we did. They went inside and stayed for an hour or so. As they were leaving, I asked an elder what they were doing inside, and he told me that the men present, who were, he said, all of the members of the great Sanhedrin, had decided the man was a heretic and should die for it. So they are planning to bring him here sometime this morning because they want you to kill him for them. With a wave of one hand, I dismissed the fellow, and he left the room. I heard men talking to each other outside, so I went with my chief assistant to one of the narrow windows, and we saw a crowd of Jews in the streets below. It included some who were wearing the robes of priests. There were also a few well-dressed and well-fed laymen who I took to be elders. And there were a lot of ordinary fellows in dark woolen robes and the kind usually worn by servants among the Jews. In the forefront of that mob were about a dozen guards from the temple, and two of them were holding the carpenter by his arms, which were still bound together at the wrists. They had stopped him outside the street door of the Hall of Judgment, which was on the ground floor underneath my room. Here he is, one of the older priesters, priests said to the sentries at the door. Tell the governor, tell the governor we have brought him to be tried. This is Passover week, another of the priests said, and we cannot come into the, any building that contains unleavened bread. Yet another priest said, it would defile us and we couldn't take part in the feast. 
The two temple guards were holding the carpenter's arms, shoved him forward, propelling him into the gate of the fortress. I went out into the hallway. Come with me, I said to the guards outside my door. And they fell in behind me in two columns, and I started down the long stairs into the judgment hall. He was standing there between two soldiers uh, who both held spears pointed at his chest. His cheek and forehead were bruised, and all down the front of his white woolen robe there was a good deal of blood, presumably from his nose, which was swollen, as were his lips. Even so, he was a very impressive figure of a man. He was taller than either of his guards, and he looked stronger than they, although he was fairly slender. His hair was disheveled as a result of the maltreatment he had been subjected to all through the night. His beard was unkempt, and there were traces of blood in it, above it, and below his mouth. So I assume his captors had wiped his face with a damp rag, though... I could not imagine why any of them would want to do that, unless it was to make themselves look more civilized in my eyes. Except where it was darkened with bruises, his face was deeply tanned, as might be expected of a man who had spent most of his life outdoors. His eyes, his eyes were as blue as the sky, and they were very clear. I thought that remarkable since the apparent Sorry, I thought that remarkable since it was apparent from the way his hands had swelled below the ropes around his wrists that he'd been tied up all through the night. And he had certainly been tormented during those long, agonizing hours. Yet, in spite of that, the bruises on his face and the bloodstains on his robes, his eyes were steady as he looked right at me. He seemed to be sustained by an unshaken faith in himself. The priests and the elders and the temple guards and all the others who were in the street with them had crowded up to the open gate. I went to them. What charges do you bring against this man? I asked. A gray-bearded old priest answered my question. We wouldn't have brought him to you unless he was a criminal. I looked that man in the eye and said, I've been informed that some of you met last night in the palace of Caiaphas and find him guilty of heresy. He's a criminal, the same old priest said. I replied, take him then and try him for heresy, since that's a crime that you really want to punish him for. A younger priest said, it's not lawful for us to put any man to death, I answered him. Whenever the great Sanhedrin has found a man guilty of heresy in the past and has asked for my approval to stone him to death, I have granted the request. Bring me a report that you have properly tried him as a heretic and find him guilty and want to stone him, and I will approve it for you as I have always done. One of the elders said, We find this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding Jews to give tribute to Caesar. He claims himself to be the Christ, the King of the Jews. 
You're charging him with sedition then, I said. He says he is our king, a number of them cried. My chief assistant was standing beside me. He said softly, they want you to kill him because you can do it more quickly than they can. I know that, I replied. But his only real offense so far was driving out merchants and money changers out of the temple courts. And that is a dispute I don't want to get involved in. Most Jews agree with him on that issue, my chief assistant said. This is exactly why I don't want to get involved, I replied. If this fellow upsets the priests and persuades the people to accept some changes in their religion, it's not my problem. My chief assistant said, Caiaphas thinks the man is going to raise a rebellion. I don't believe that, I replied. If we try him, it'll take us days to dispose of his case, one of the elders cried out. We'll have to call a lower court into session first, then the great Sanhedrin, and dear knows how long all that time, how much time that's going to take. He's still got followers, you know, and they'll create disturbances. You don't want to have a public onus for condemning him to death, I said to him. What makes you think that I do? We know you met last night and judged him guilty of heresy, my chief assistant said to the men at the gate. So go through your proper procedures and stone him to death yourself. He's a traitor, yelled one of the elders. A Roman governor should resist all attempts to make him one of the spiders in any web of religious orthodoxy, I said to those men. Take him away and try him yourselves. No, 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 they cried. I think you're making a serious mistake, I told them. If I try him and condemn him to death for treason as you want me to do, he will be crucified, as you know. And and that is exactly how he has been telling everyone he will die. I understand he's been saying that because of crucifixion is the kind of awful death your prophets had foretold of God's greatest servant. He says he is our king, One of the priests yelled. We're charging him with sedition. You must try him on that charge. I left them and walked to my judgment seat where I sat and looked at the carpenter who had not moved a single inch since he had come into the room. I said to him, are you the king of the Jews? He looked at me for a moment silently. Then he replied, Are you asking me this question yourself, or are you asking it because those men have put it to you? I answered him, I am a Jew. It is your own people and your own chief priests who have delivered you to me, so what have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, he said, as calmly as if He had been Caesar Augustus speaking of lands beyond the river. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would have fought to keep me from being delivered to my enemies. I remembered then that his friends had been willing to put up a fight for him in Gethsemane, but he had ordered them to stop at a time of skirmish. In the darkness, there might have been opportunity to escape. 
Therefore, the fact that he was standing before me was evidence that his reply reflected his actual beliefs. Yet, I recognized there were promises for me if I released him. There were problems for me if I released him. After all, Caiaphas was my, was my appointee and a close ally. I counted on his support from day to day. He was loyal to me, and I was loyal to him, exactly from the time that I had arrived in Judea until the day I departed. I asked the prisoner, are you a king then? He answered through his swollen lips very quietly, it is as you say. To this end I was born, and for this I was brought into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. What is the truth? I said. Caesar himself might have envied the fellow as he stood there all straight and tall, for thinking that he knew the truth when the wisest philosophers and men of science have to confess that they do not. Such sublime self-assurance is commonly an inevitable aspect of insanity. Yet I would not have considered the prisoner any more deranged than most of the men in Jerusalem uh, who, were, who, were, who believed that crucifixion was a necessary sacrifice to absolve all mankind of its sins, and that he believed that he would rise again from the dead. I said to him, you hear how many things they say against you, yet you have no answer. The carpenter remains silent, and the expression on his face was inscrutable. His eyes were staring into mine as if he could see right through them into my soul. I stepped down from my judgment seat and walked to the open gate and stopped six feet from the, from the men that were there and said to them, I find no fault in him. That mixed company of denigrates and uh, vagabonds all cried out in, display, in dismay. One of the priests shouted, he has been stirring up the Jews all throughout Judea and Galilee. That reference to Galilee, that was aimed at me. I said, is this man a Galilean? And that silenced them all. They knew that I could hardly be unaware of the location of the town of Nazareth. Finally, one of them said, he is a Galilean. In that case, he belongs to the jurisdiction of the Tetrarch, I replied. I was glad of an excuse to deliver that troublesome prisoner to Herod, who would not be under pressure from chief priests in the same way that I was. Herod didn't have any of them in Galilee. They were all in Jerusalem. So I sent him off to Herod. If the poor fellow standing in his blood-stained robe with his wrists tied together could have worked a miracle for his king, he could have saved himself there and then. Perhaps I should say that if he would rather, sorry, perhaps I should say if he would have rather than if he could have. He was surely capable of doing unusual things. Upon that, all witnesses are agreed. But on that day, he never wavered in his resolution to do nothing to save himself. Herod descended from the throne and questioned the carpenter at some length. 
But he refused to say anything, not even when a crowd of priests and elders who stood around him began baiting him with accusations and insults. They were hoping to goad him into saying something that they could use to discredit him with most, if not all, Jews. But throughout his time there in Herod's presence, he remained silent. His enemies later said that he was moved by their devil to act in that way in order to appear to be the great man of God foretold of in their prophecies. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, their prophet Isaiah wrote. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. The priests and elders who were accusing him were all scholars of devout Uh, were all scholars and devout students of Jewish scriptures. They were outraged by what he was doing, by their theatrical role he was playing on that day. They knew what he was up to, and they were appalled by what they considered the horrifying impiety of it all. So Herod sent him back to me. This was something I was not looking forward to. I thought, is there any way... I can get round killing this man. So I decided to try and strike a bargain with the people outside the gates. What if I was to release Barabbas instead? Surely that might satisfy their cries, though it was something that I really did not want to do. So I put it to them. Who would you rather I release this man, Jesus the Christ, or Barabbas? Barabbas, they cried, release Barabbas. I waited for any voice that might be raised. I just wanted hope that might say Jesus, and I would have to suspend the proceedings right there and then. But still the cry came, Barabbas, release Barabbas. I held up my hands to them to quieten them, and I asked them, then what shall I do with this Jesus of Nazareth. Crucify him, they shouted. Crucify him. In the hope of suspending it, I decided, what if I got a young centurion to scourge him? Surely that would satisfy their desires. But no. The men at the gate all remained silent as one of the soldiers took the carpenter's robe from his shoulders Another soldier then removed his own white wool robe, and they began to beat him. As the carpenter's back became red with welts and then with blood, he made no sound. He neither cried out nor moaned, but his body finally became limp. After the scourging was over, he was being held up by two two other soldiers, one on either side of them. I told him, now you can take the prisoner into the Praetorian. The soldiers stationed in Jerusalem at that time were members of a Syrian legion, and they were all rough men, and they all hated Jews as their traditional enemies from times gone by. So they were delighted to get their hands on this Jesus of Nazareth. I followed them as they dragged the half-naked prisoner away. The two soldiers who were holding his arms were keeping him upright, or he would have fallen to the floor. Another soldier confronted him and pressed a circlet that had been plaited out in a thorns down onto his head, 
and blood began to trickle down. Then two other soldiers wrapped them in the purple robe that Herod had given him, and one put a reed into one of his hands as a scepter, as if to mock him. Then they all fell on their knees before him and cried, Hail to the king of the Jews. When I thought he looked pitiful enough to arouse the sympathy of his enemies, I said, Take him into the hall of judgment. And two soldiers dragged him into that place. I went before them and crossed the hall towards the open door, and I stopped a few feet short of the crowd in the street. Bring him here, I said to the soldiers on either side of him. He was still being supported by them, but he was brought forward. He raised his head just enough to look at his accusers, blinking at them through the blood that was running through the, down his forehead and into his eyes. As if he was held up in front of them, he was just a broken man in a purple robe and a crown of thorns. I raised one hand toward them and said, Behold the man. His misery had no effect upon them. The priests and the elders and others in the crowd shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! My patience was exhausted. I said, You crucify him because I can find no fault in him. I heartily wished to put the whole affair behind me. And it would have been better for everyone if I had succeeded. If I had released him there and then, he would have gone from the fortress, thoroughly discredited as a self-styled son of their almighty God. He would have been a public joke if he had preached in the streets of Jerusalem after that humiliation he had been subjected to that morning. He had come up to Jerusalem to die and serve his own strange purpose by doing so. And his enemies cooperated with him to that end. As I look back upon that day, it appears to me that he knew what he was doing. And they did not. In spite of all their learning, and in spite of all their knowledge, in spite of all their wisdom, one of them said to me, By our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. It was an error for them to openly state their actual reason for seeking his death at my hands, because it didn't relate to the charges they were bringing against him, nor to any other crime or misdemeanor under Roman law. However, I find myself reflecting upon what they had said in a way that would have surprised any person who has ever known me. I turned away from the crowd, and I saw Jesus was still looking at me through the blood that was trickling down his face from his crown of thorns. All at once I was overcome with an eerie feeling that it was I who was on trial before him. As we stared at each other, I reflected upon my wife's dream. It seemed to me an omen, an important one, and I began to want to be careful about what I was doing. The gods may exist or they may not, including his God. And all of them, but yet I did not want to tempt fate. I took him by the arm and led him into the middle of the hall, where we were in front of the judgment seat. I brought him to a stop and turned him to face me. I looked into that silent, bloody face and asked him for an answer to the basic question in my mind, where do you come from? 
he looked back at me calmly and gave me no answer. His conduct now had me thinking of that passage from the Jewish prophet Isaiah. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And with his stripes, we are healed. I was disturbed when I remembered those words. Because the carpenter did now indeed have stripes. I had just caused them by having him scourged. So it seemed that I was now responsible for the fulfillment of the prophecy about the Messiah. I resented being maneuvered by the men. I condemned him and I'd find him innocent of the charges they had brought against him. Partly because I began to admire him in an odd way. Therefore, I decided now was the moment to take no pains in concealing my feelings from them. I went to my judgment seat and sat down on them, sat down on it. I then looked beyond the carpenter at the crowd of men and the open door, and I taunted them by calling out to them, Behold, here is your king. They shouted, Away with him, crucify him. I answered them, What shall I do? Crucify your king. They cried, we have no king but Caesar. So I decided I wanted nothing more to do with this. I asked the men to bring me a bowl of water, which was an old ritual that they all knew well and, well and good, and I began to wash my hands. And as I dipped my hands into the, into the water, I looked into the carpenter's bloody face. His eyes were closed and his lips were moving as if he were praying. As I dried my hands on the towel which my servant had offered to me, I called out to the crowd of men at the door, I am innocent of the blood of this just man. Look you to it. Look you to it. Jesus of Nazareth once again was strangely looking at me. But I had no choice. As I turned to the centurion and said, Crucify the prisoner with those other thieves I condemned yesterday. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see the king of love. See this the purple robe and crown of thorns he wears. Soldiers mock, rulers sneer, as he lifts the cruel cross, lone and friendless now, he climbs towards the hill. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning overwhelmed by your love. Love that we truly don't deserve, yet out of your grace and your mercy and your concern for us, you poured it out so lavishly for us through the suffering of your own son on the cross. Father, as we leave here today, as we enter this holy week, as we follow the journey of Jesus from that triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, through the course of the week, through the Passover, through the communion service with his believers, to his betrayal, to his trial before Pilate, 
to his crucifixion on the cross, and then ultimately to his resurrection and eternal life. Father, we just pray that you would enable us to grasp afresh the wonder and the awe and the mystery of your great plan for all humanity, and not just for all humanity, but for each and every one of us, that your love for us knows no limits, it knows no bounds, it even finds itself stripped and nailed to a cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.